Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. This is the first of maybe three total episodes that we'll be playing on both the You Have Permission and the Depolarize podcast feeds. The reason for the double appearance is that this interview really fits quite well under the banner of both shows. But let me address each listener group briefly. You Have Permission listeners, if you didn't know, I have another podcast called Depolarize. I've had it since 2016. It's more focused on the intersection of politics, psychology, and sometimes faith, depending on which season. That show is going to be winding down this year, but if that sounds interesting, there are 60 or so episodes of Depolarize for your listening enjoyment, the latter 25 or so with my co-host Ellen Morrow. And Depolarize listeners, Ellen will be back for a handful of Depolarize episodes that fit more in the recent format that she and I have been doing. And if you guys didn't know, I started another show called You Have Permission that deals more directly with faith questions. And if that sounds interesting to you, this is the 11th episode of that show and you can check it out. Now to our topic today, Dr. Elizabeth Corey is an associate professor of political science at Baylor University in Texas. She's also on the board of First Things, a conservative and Catholic based magazine that I subscribed to last year. It was a bit too conservative for my tastes in the final analysis, but I respect it. And I have been impressed by a lot of what Dr. Corey has written, both in First Things and elsewhere. She wrote a joint op-ed in The Atlantic before the Supreme Court Obergefell decision in which she and her openly gay sister wrote about their disagreements over the issue of gay marriage and how they ultimately stayed close friends despite this difference. 
She also works next door to her colleague, Alan Jacobs at Baylor, whose book, How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds, is maybe the best thing I've read about the difficulty of not joining either sociopolitical mob in our country. There's a link to that book in the show notes. And uh, Elizabeth has written some about her and Alan's shared affinity for pushing against the mob mentality on either side of the spectrum. And it's worth noting, those spectrums, the political, the social, the moral, they are all congealing, seemingly, into really just two sides of a socio-political culture war, which is very frustrating uh, to Elizabeth, Alan, and to myself. I was really excited to see where this conversation went, and I gotta say, I was not disappointed. So here's my chat with Dr. Elizabeth Corey. I'm so glad to have you here. You know, normally as a podcaster, I interview people. Most of the time I agree with them. In some sense, there's something that they have taught or written about that I'm like, that's great. I'd like people to hear about that. And that's true for you and I, but in a more of a roundabout way. Uh, You and I, I think, differ a good amount politically and, and probably even more so we differ theologically. I think you're more of a conservative, more conservative theologically than I am. But you ride this line and you make it part of your mission to knock down the kind of tribal walls and banners that we erect on either side. And in that regard, I'm like 100% on Team Corey. And so thank you for being willing to chat with me today. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm interested to see where this conversation goes. Like I I have kind of an endpoint in mind, but I'm, I'm purposefully kind of leaving it open I love that you are a female intellectual who is conservative. In a lot of circles, that alone would be enough to give you a scarlet A. I'm sure that many feminist thinkers have told you or you can tell they think of you as a traitor, Uncle Tom type. And that's, of course, stupid. And you you seem willing to tackle that stuff and take it head on, which I love. One good place we might start, which of the various mobs of our day is one that in theory or in other people's eyes, you would be the most drawn to, people would assume that you were a part of that mob? That's an interesting way of putting the question because uh, I was thinking about this question generally uh, on my own and my first answer is to say, well, it's the burden of of an intellectual or of somebody who is in the university not to be part of a mob. Hmm. And I think that's right. I mean, I, I think ultimately that needs to be our aspiration no matter where we are to not succumb to, you know, an ideology, a mob mentality. Well, I don't know how good of a score we're getting on that these days in, in the no, university. No, it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible because most people are quietly um, ideological or not so quietly ideological. So people certainly would see me as part of something that they broadly term conservative. And that is true in the sense that I, I'm a very traditional person. I believe in trying to rescue and to understand and know the good of the tradition we've inherited. That is, in a sense, my mission in teaching. But to use the word conservative in the modern day is really is really tricky because there are lots and lots of different kinds of conservatives. And right. with many of those, I don't agree and I don't identify. So I'm to, to answer your question in, other, in another way than just to say, I aspire not to be part of a mob. Yeah, of any mob. Yeah. But certainly people would say, because I do not make myself part of the feminist world or the progressive world, that I'm necessarily conservative and therefore part of that mob. Oh, yeah. 
what a what a stupid move to make, but I totally see that. Let's start by talking about this Atlantic piece that you co-wrote with your sister, who is openly gay. And in it, you talk about the Cheney sisters, also named Elizabeth and Mary, you and your sister's name, which is just incredible. That is Dick Cheney. You know, the movie Vice just came out with Christian Bale playing Dick Cheney and, and the subplot of their daughters and this issue of gay marriage and the politics of it uh, is a major, major subplot of the film. What is important for us to remember just about the history around that before we talk about uh, the piece that you wrote with your sister? Well, honestly, I have not yet seen the movie. I've been wanting to see the movie. So if if you want to fill me in a little bit on how the plot plays out, that would be great. Um, I think at the time we wrote the article together, the issue of gay marriage was very much up in the air. I mean, it it was not yet decided by the Supreme Court. Pre-Obergefell, yeah. Exactly. It was it was even in May of that year, and then it was decided in June. So we had, um, you know, it was very much an open question that people in my circles and Mary's circles were, were talking about a lot. And we decided that we would write something about it. And then I, I had a recollection in my mind that Mary and Elizabeth Cheney had, had, ta- had um, publicly differed over this. I've tried to follow that up to figure out how they're doing now, you know, how, how things have resolved. And I actually don't know the answer to that. And that would have some bearing on how I answer the question. Can you give me that? I don't know. I don't know how it is now in uh, 2019, but I think without giving away the movie, I can say that this is historical record. The straight sister was supportive and towed the same line that Dick and Lynn Cheney towed, which was, you know what? We're never going to openly denounce gay marriage. It's too important to our family. And one of the subplots of the film is eventually the the straight sister runs for office and she does denounce it. Mm-hmm. And that sort of tears at their at their sisterly friendship. And she does it for political expediency, mm-hmm. not because she actually believes that it's I wrong, see. which is an interesting kind of an angle to talk about this mob stuff, right? It's like sometimes it has nothing to do with people's actual convictions. That's right. When I spoke out about the, the issue of, of gay marriage, it, it wasn't for a political reason. It was it was for the reason of trying to break down some of these barriers about disagreement. Which is why I loved the piece so much. Well, and, my, and that was my sister's idea, too. She, I think she had no idea how much flack I would take for having written what I did. Uh, she was expecting, you know, the conservatives would come out against her and liberals would come out against me. And what happened was, and maybe this is partly that it was in the Atlantic, liberals came out against me and nobody came out against her. Hmm. And it does make me wonder if a conservative magazine had published this, would conservatives have come out in the same way and the same with the same degree of, of vitriol against her? Interesting. Yeah. And I don't know the answer to it. But unless you were on a super, super far right kind of kooky website, I I suspect not. The way I tend to think about it is if you're on the right and you become too embedded in your ideology and not open enough to Christian love, then you become selfish. You you hoard resources. You you sort of keep things from the poor. and, And that ends up being kind of the group move. On the left, if you become too into that ideology and not in, impacted enough by Christ's love, you become sanctimonious and judgmental. You yes. become better than thou. And so it would make sense. Like if you're, if you're just really far on the right, you might not care to write the person. You're just like, glad I'm keeping my rights. Glad my mm-hmm. kids is protected or whatever. Whereas on the left, like the currency is sanctimony and being better, 
when you're on the when you're on the far left and when you're on the unthinking left. We might call those the unthinking right and the unthinking left. Of course, people can have well thought out positions across the spectrum, but right. if you're just doing it as part of the mob, then yeah, you pile on. And this is this is the stuff that Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff are talking about, which I know you're familiar with their work. The recent book, Coddling of the American Mind, they tackle two questions at the same time. One of, well, they tackle like six, but two of them are the lack of conservative thinkers in universities now. That number has steadily declined for the last 30 years dramatically. And then the other thing to talk about is call out culture on the left and this kind of piling on. You get, you get uh, virtue points with your group for publicly calling people out. The perfect example of this is the, is the uh, quote tweet, right? Those of us on Twitter, you can either respond to someone or you can publicly show the tweet they sent and then respond publicly. And if you do that, then you get 100 times the attention or mm-hmm. 500 times, 5,000 times, whatever your uh, tweet followership is. Those are kind of two symptoms of the same uh, illness, you might say, right now. And so, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't disagree that I- it would be a different reaction from the left to right. I would say that the the difference would not be that one side – is by definition more virtuous than the other, but that they're just operating out of a different part of their brain. Mm-hmm. Well, I wondered though, um, because I had expected Mary, the, the vast majority of reactions to that piece about marriage where we differ um, were congratulatory and thank you both for this. We mm, appreciate yeah. this. It's very much not something we hear all the time. Oh, cool. It's That's great. great. So there was a lot of good. Uh, good feedback. But then there were there were people on Mary's side who said things to the effect of, I can't imagine how you could associate with somebody who denies your fundamental right. Denies your uh, humanity or something like that. Denies right? your humanity. Yeah. And uh, there were a few people like that, uh, both on the Atlantic website and then writing privately to Mary. And I had expected, honestly, somebody on the right that I know to have said, I can't believe you're being so tolerant in every way except mm. for marriage. Uh, because I, there, I know there are certain Christians who would say you should not allow your children to be uh, with a gay couple. You should not allow them to even know that this goes on. There, there is a certain part of fundamentalist Christian culture that says just stay away from this. Yeah. And so I expected a few people to come to me and, that, like, and say something like that, but that didn't happen. Uh, maybe people just didn't didn't want to. Maybe they yeah. thought it. I w- but I've always wondered. Yeah, I wonder two two things that might be part of that. One, those people probably aren't reading the Atlantic. A good point. Um, and number two, even before Obergefell, I think that there has become a kind of a cultural understanding, perhaps through love and understanding, but also perhaps through threat of retribution, that like it's like racism now. You might have the traditional view of homosexuality, but you don't talk about it openly. Exactly. Because and 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 so there's a stigma. And uh, you know, as someone who is gay affirming theologically and certainly um civilly I think that the personally, I think the civil question is easier than the theological question. It is. Um, I am kind of okay with that. Like, I, I like that there's a racism, you know, stigma, and that people don't feel they can do that in educated circles and stuff. But at the same time, that's not the real reason you want people to act rightly, even if you agree with their actions. You don't want them doing it out of fear of retribution, but out of uh, conviction. The point of the article also was not so much to say I'm gonna I'm gonna say this say give give my traditional understanding of marriage and expect to convert people. I, right. I actually didn't expect that you, at all. You wrote that you don't expect to convince people by writing this actually in the piece. No. Yeah. And it's and it's true. I never did because people are pretty much um, they've made up their own minds on these things and they certainly have now even more so than in 2015. 
But what I wanted to show is that there are there are people who who do have different views uh, about really fundamental moral things and that they're not held out of hatred or bigotry. They are held for the theological and moral reasons and sometimes grounded in in the Bible. And we could I mean, that would be another a slightly different conversation. But I wanted to say, look, we disagree and it's not out of bigotry or hatred, but it is nevertheless a disagreement that's not just going to go away. Uh, Mary's not going to change. It's very unlikely that I will change on my fundamental beliefs. And yet we are in a relationship and we are, you know, God willing, in a relationship for a long time. How, how do we how do we navigate this difference? And I think what it takes on her part is a tremendous willingness to uh, and, and my part too. just say, I don't want to say live and let live because that's such a vague kind of unhelpful proposition, but a recognition that that we live in a pluralist society. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, that whatever that uh, skill is that you and your sister need, that is increasingly increasingly the skill that all of us need. We we just it's no longer the Middle Ages where we live and die in the same village surrounded by the same two hundred people. It's no longer. A hundred thousand years ago, where we live and die in the same hunter gatherer tribe of two hundred people, mm-hmm. we now many of us live in cities. You and I live in cities where there are you know one hundred ethnicities within a right. fifty mile radius, and probably as many religions or at least shades of religion. And so, how do we do that? Acknowledging that we will differ—that's like the civil question, I think. Of it our is time. the civil question. It is a civil question, and and I, and I think what if I had to condense down what Mary and I both what we absolutely do agree on here, it's on the the notion of pluralism and that there can be moral pluralism in our society. And if there, yeah. if this kind of plural plural goods are not allowed, then we will be fighting in the way we're fighting just right now hmm. about everything. And one of the things we're arguing for is that politics, well, that politics is not everything. So these political questions such as, um, you know, uh, abortion and gay – actually, abortion is a little different for me, I think. But but uh, gay marriage is – that ought not to divide us as human beings. And if we could somehow rein back in these political questions so that they don't take take all of our identities, that would be a very good thing for all of us. Yeah. I want to ask you about what's how this how your relationship with your sister and your conversation has actually progressed after writing that piece uh, in terms of just obviously the issue the issue you guys were addressing pre Obergefell about an inability of people to disagree and and live next to each other has not gotten better no since then. not at all uh, but I did want to um, I wanted to ask you one kind of specific thing about this topic and I apologize for this long question. It comes from Richard Beck, the psychologist, uh, his book, Unclean. So he's an experimental psychologist, and he makes what seems to me to be an interesting and a pretty strong point. There are these idioms in traditional Christianity called love the sinner, hate the sin. These type of things, they sound really good to us. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that is how you would necessarily think of your sister, but you know, I, it's something I was told a thousand times growing up. Sure. Only the problem with those, as Beck sees it, is that from a psychological standpoint, whether or not it's true that homosexual sex is sinful, our moral intuitions about sex come from our what he calls our disgust center, the same place where we get like grossed out by gore or cannibalism, spit and snot. It's the same place where like if I spit into a cup, I won't drink it, even though the spit just came f- exactly from where I would be drinking yes. it, right? 
And so in practice, he says, it's very hard to both erect a boundary and also knock that boundary down in love and hospitality simultaneously, which is why love the sinner, hate the sin sounds good, but rarely seems to be done well within Christian communities. And that's more within communities than necessarily one-to-one relationships like you have with your sister. But I'm just curious about your thoughts on that on that problem with that approach. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if he's universally right. I mean, because I, I was I had seen this in your um, set of questions, and I thought, well, I'll 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 think about this. But when I'm going back in my own mind and thinking about, well, what is it that makes me have this view of marriage? It's not it's not thinking about the sexual act per se as disgusting. Mm. It is more an understanding of going all the way back to Genesis, the creation of man and woman is complementary and the the possibility of new life coming from that union. That to me is the reason for marriage such that families are formed and that, that life goes on through those families. It's, it's not a particularly profound theological reason, but it is, it is that understanding of marriage that I understand is fundamentally not part of gay marriage, which mm-hmm. is in which the possibility of procreation is not possible. Right. Or, or only possible through uh, through artificial means. It has less to do with disgust about a particular sexual act than about the understanding of the purpose of marriage in the Christian world. Yeah, and that argument uh, makes sense to me, and I I have no reason to doubt that your that is actually your reason. I wonder mm-hmm. though if you think he might still be right for like the lay person. Like I don't think that the average pew sitting evangelical, for instance, has really thought through the implications of that marriage needs to produce offspring. I mean, many of those same people would do IVF or they would use birth control or, you know, all kinds of stuff. So that doesn't actually seem like this is like what happens when you end up spending a lot of time with theologians and philosophers. They have reasons for things that are really good and that just simply aren't most people's reasons Mm -hmm. because they haven't spent the time thinking about it. Sure. And, and, and I think what he says is probably on target for, for a great many people. I mean, you still do go to places where you hear things like you hear, hear the word fag use and, yeah. oh my gosh, that's so disgusting. That's just gross. And that is the way people voice their opposition to uh, homosexual sex. But it's homosexual sex to me is a different issue from the marriage question, which mm-hmm. I actually do separate. But, but, but back to your point, it's not about somebody who works in a university like me trying to think of a good, you know, a, a, a good way to explain what I, what I believe. I think the discuss question is probably right on target for, for very many people. Yeah, that's good. So maybe um, for people who do hold the traditional view, a, a potential future line of work or of, of mutual conversation maybe between academics and, and lay people is like, hey, let, let's have a good reason for this and let's not um, rest on just our emotional disgust or something like yeah. that. Because as, as Beck argues in his book, and I'm sure you would agree, uh, Jesus pushes pretty hard against that purity disgust mechanism in the Pharisees mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm, the Jewish culture. Does. And he's eating on the Sabbath. It's not what goes in you that makes you unclean, you know, exactly. hanging out with sinners who they didn't want to touch. The uh, Samaritan woman at the well, uh, all that stuff, the Good Samaritan parable. So future work, future work. Yes, exactly. <laughs> thrown down, anybody listening. Um, about you and your sister, how have you, how was your conversation? I mean, I assume you're still close and on good terms. We are. Yeah. So how has your conversation since that piece 
which is what, five, five years old now, more? It was 2015, so four, four years, years old. Yeah. So things have only gotten sort of crazier in the in the world of can we agree to disagree in America, especially on political issues. How have your conversations evolved since, since that piece came out and, and during the era of Trump and, and all of that? That is a great question. It, they've evolved in the sense that this has become a kind of constant point of reference whenever we whenever we speak. Uh, this, this question of civil disagreement, deep disagreements across people who have reason to be in relationships with each other. I mean, one thing we've talked about is, um, you know, it's it's easy with people you disagree with and you say you work with them. Well, you just set boundaries. You say, well, we're not going to go there. We're not going to talk about that. Or I'm going to avoid that person as much as possible. Or, you know, there are all sorts of ways to get out of those kinds of relationships if they make you uncomfortable. But what she and I have been exploring lately is that, well, this is a problem that happens in families all the time. Uh, she knows this from having friends who are usually the most liberal and progressive and often gay in their family, you know, the only gay person in the, in the conservative family. Right. Uh, her, part, her partner is in this situation. And she is, too, for that matter. And I know it from having conservatives come to me and say, oh, you know, my, my sister is gay and this is tearing our family apart. How do I deal with it? So it, the family situation, I think, is a special one in the sense that you're not going to walk in, 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 except in the worst of cases, right. you're not going to walk away from those relationships. So given that, and given that difference from the kinds of relationships you can easily walk away from if they're uncomfortable, our conversation has come back again and again to how, how do we have a real relationship where we don't dwell on our differences, but we don't run from them either. And we've, we've managed to make that happen in a pretty open and honest way to the extent that right now we're thinking about writing a book on this subject yeah. about sort of civil disagreement and maybe pitching it specifically toward people who are in families and find themselves in these situations. Well, it's interesting because the family is maybe the crucible for the skills that other people could use. Oh, of course it is. Because you can't get out of it. Uh, so not, without giving away the book – I mean, what have you figured out? Like, what have you found? Like, what's the answer? Give it to us because we're all struggling with this. <laughs> well, that's great. And I wish I wish there, there were a simple and easy answer. Well, this this gets to something I've written about in another context. It's this idea of modality. It's where I was going to um, go next. So great. Let's okay. just go there. Well, good. I, this is a very philosophical idea, but I can explain it in a way that's not particularly difficult. Um, I, I read a philosopher by the name of Michael Oakeshott, who is – uh, he was a political philosopher in the 19th, uh, in the 1900s and 20th century, and he understood life as potentially viewed through a variety of modes, such that uh, you know you would have what he called the practical mode, the historical mode, the aesthetic mode, uh, the scientific mode. And what that means is you can look at something. Let's just take, for example, a water bottle. You can look at a water bottle and say, "What is this for? What what does this do for me?" And everybody would say, well, it's a water bottle. It's a way of drinking water. It's a way of satisfying your thirst. Absolutely, that's right. But you can also look at that water bottle in a very different way. You could say, what is this? And give a different kind of answer. Uh, and you would say, well, it's it's a modern version of the Thracian drinking horn. Hmm. It is it is the historical relic of um, something people have been doing for years and years. And it's a, it's a historical question there. But this what Oakshot calls this aesthetic mode is a way of saying – I'm going to look and appreciate and delight in this water bottle for its beauty and for its its uniqueness and not try to use it or judge it or explain it or put it in a historical sense. That's a very long way of saying I think what Mary and I are trying to say is that all of life doesn't need to be looked at in the practical mode of fighting about politics. I mean, Amen. It, it, 
is she really only somebody who holds a view that I disagree with? Am I only that to her? If so, yeah, or mostly pretty, or even, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty impo- impoverished way of looking at people we love. Well, and the family so helps with that because especially in the family context, you're like, of course she's not only someone you disagree with. She's also your sister. Right. She's the aunt to your kids. I mean, you know, like it, exactly. it, it becomes obvious that that's true. And so then you apply that to even non-familial relationships, right? And it can help quite a bit to say, who is this person and what does he or she really love and what ought I and what can I love about them, about that person? And and to the degree we can do that with people we really disagree with, I think it opens up possibilities for relationships. Whereas if we are constantly thinking, okay, well, this person is on the wrong side on, on politics. And, and I know that. So they're in the bad category. But this other person is on the right side, even if he's kind of a jerk. Well, I can be friends with him. Oh, That's yeah. a ridiculous way of looking at people. Yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah. The, actually, your um, your colleague, and I, I believe your your next door office neighbor, uh, Alan Jacobs. Yes. I'm a big fan of his. He wrote a piece recently. This is for the theology nerds called "My David Bentley Hart Problem." David <laughs> Bentley Hart is an Orthodox uh, theologian, American, but he's like a Russian Orthodox theologian. I found his writing so helpful. I agree with him so much. And this is basically what Jacob said in his piece. He's like, except there's this problem that when he writes, he uses all these logical fallacies and he attack, he, he uses straw man arguments and he, he does ad hominem attacks on his opponents. And he's, you know, it's just kind of like the way he is his, his personality, I think, but he's this mm-hmm. fireball thinker, which is rare for yes. theologians. And and Jacob's point was like, this presents me with an issue because I'm on team David Bentley Hart. And so am I forgiving him his philosophical sins, maybe even character sins, if you want to say that there's a moral element to what we say in public as public thinkers. And I think you could argue for that convincingly. I'm going to forgive those things because he says things that I agree with, right? Right. And so what do we <laughs> – that that piece hit me kind of hard. And I would kind of go the other way. <laughs> Even if the, we disagree on the very most important things, that doesn't mean that the person is written off in, in the way that, um, you know, people are so so likely to do in, in this day and age. I mean, the, the, a good example of this is just um, a, the, a friend of hers who who has said things like, I don't know how you could have a relationship with your sister because she is on the wrong side of this. And Mary says, I don't see why you don't understand how we could have a relationship. Yeah. And it's because Mary and I value this other way of looking at each other, which is not political. It is not issue oriented. It is looking at the person as a whole. At least we try to do that. And so just connect that back again to modality. Cause I have a couple more questions about this idea of modality. Sure. So with your sister, you're thinking about her in different modes or, or how do you connect those two? Well, I'm thinking about her not as a combination of a bunch of ideas or positions or political views that are either acceptable morally and politically to me or not. But I'm looking at her as who is she as a person? Let, let me just appreciate her as a person rather than sort of tallying up where where we stand on these so things. So you're taking the personal mode and prioritizing it over the political ideological mode or something like that. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm appreciating her almost aesthetically. Not yeah. like she's so beautiful, which she is beautiful. But I mean, I ultimately think this is a, a kind of a Christian love, an understanding of Christian love that you're not trying to always change people to be like you or to do what you want. 
it is is to love it is to see them as they want to be seen and i try to do that with her and she does with me yeah i love that what are some other contentious topics or issues that we might take this modality this modal thinking and and apply it to helpfully well, lots of things, I, I think. I mean, Oakshot is so interesting in that way. I mean, certainly relationships. I mean, you can imagine marriage, taking taking away the gay marriage versus um, heterosexual marriage, just saying marriage, it could be a practical thing where you marry somebody because they offer you benefits yeah. of all kinds. And that's actually mostly you, what it was in, in the ancient world, for instance. That's that's right. That is what it was. Um, and that's, that's one way of looking at it. Um, or you could view it as a almost quasi-aesthetically in the sense that um, it is a it is a thing of itself to be enjoyed in itself. Uh, the other person is not somebody who satisfies your desires, but someone who you appreciate and love. I would also say to, to to step aside entirely from the question of marriage. It does seem to me that that universities can be understood in this way. Yes, I, I wrote a piece about this, arguing that the contemporary university has gone almost wholly over toward the political, ideological, moral, practical mode um, mode. Yeah. And I think that's a really big problem. Yeah, And Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff would agree with you on that problem. They would. That they they, they want to say, look, a university is not an activism center. Activism exactly. organizations are fine. You're welcome to start them. You're, you're welcome to fundraise from people who share your activist goals. Activism is protected speech. But that's not what universities are. Universities are where you go to be exposed to the wider world, to learn how to think critically, to learn a skill for your job. Yeah, but not to become little activists. That's just a yeah. that's just a different thing in society than the university or in their mind. And I would agree it ought that's not what the university ought to be. Mm-hmm. I, I'm actually completely it's, it's very seldom I would completely agree with uh, a position but I do completely agree with them on that because I see it going both ways. I mean, I came out of Oberlin College as an undergrad, and I was not particularly political then, didn't didn't really know much about politics. But I remember thinking, this place is very, very far to the left in terms of what is acceptable here. And I sometimes felt that I was being taught, not, I was taught a lot of good things, but being taught how to be, how to be kind of a, um, an activist on the left. I've also now had some association with other schools that define themselves very far, on, very much on the right, and as a kind of reaction to the the mainstream contemporary university, they they go off and say, well, we're conservative and we're self self consciously and self righteously conservative. I, I I have an equal problem with that because I agree with Height and uh, Lukianoff uh, that that's not the that's not the role of the university, but increasingly it is, and, and increasingly it's hard to articulate a. a a mode of the university that is not moral, political, and practical, and and in many cases, simply ideological. So when I teach, I try to keep, I mean, I try my best to keep ideology entirely out of it. In some classes, it's very easy. If you're teaching art history, it, uh, it's, it's hard to import ideology into art history. Less easy in politics. As you probably know, I record two bonus episodes every month, and these are only sent out to my patrons, people who support the show on Patreon, which starts at five bucks a month. The first bonus episode of March is a departure, I guess you could say, from some of the other bonus episodes. It was quite silly 
It involved drinking beer while we recorded. It was about going on tour. And it included three or four spontaneously written and performed songs. My guests for this chat included two touring musicians, Tyson Motzenbacher and Matt Wright. And of course, you know, I was a touring musician in my former life in the band Sherwood. And their roommate, Joseph, a production designer for a big Calvary Chapel church in San Diego, who has also done a bit of touring himself. Um, We talked about stories from the road, what we loved about it. We spent quite a bit of time talking about uh, whether or not the uh, urine cooler in the back of Emery's tour bus is an elegant solution or not. Rather than playing clips from the conversation, um, I'm going to play this song that we forced Matt to write and sing in the moment, on the spot, about his favorite convenience store, Sheets. When the rain is pouring down And you're driving through a central Virginia town A central Virginia town And you see that bright red sign Oh, you better pay it some real mind You better get off the road Because there it goes There's a sheets coming up on the corner You can get your favorite drink if you wanna They got fresh treats So many fresh things for you to eat Including a pickle in a bag Oh, sheets, you're always there If if you're on the eastern seaboard (laughs) Yeah, if you're driving through central Virginia You should choose a sheets Wow That's very good That is great That's true, that's a great gas station You've never put eastern seaboard in a song before Very rarely I I, I need to work on that one And that is more or less what to expect from this bonus episode. Uh, We're calling it Tour Story 3, Tour Stories from Tour. Um, I thought it would make kind of a fun change of pace, peek behind the curtain a little bit into this part of my life that I don't talk about nearly as often. Uh, But you could be the judge of whether or not it succeeded. In addition to these bonus episodes, patrons also get access to a patron-only You Have Permission Facebook group, which has really started to get going um, into something beautiful just even in the last few weeks. I'm really excited about that. And I also use that Facebook group to field questions for future interviews. And in fact, I did that with Elizabeth. So towards the end of this episode, there are some patron submitted questions for her that I ask. If you are married to someone who is on the Patreon, but you also listen to the show, feel free to join the Facebook group. Shoot me a message maybe and let me know that that's what you're doing. And if money is legitimately an issue, uh, that $5 a month is not in your budget right now, email me. Let's talk. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. I don't want money to be a hindrance. And you can become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. Enough of this ad. Let's get back to the wonderful Dr. Elizabeth Corey. It strikes me that there is an interesting situation going on with a lot of Christian universities and Christian seminaries. And this this 
idea of modality might actually help us think about this. Um, a lot of colleges and seminaries in the Christian world that are trying to put into practice what, what Hyde is saying, they are trying to be places where people learn to think, where opposing viewpoints are brought in and are debated. I, I'm thinking in particular of Seattle Pacific University, which is – I have friends who teach there. But in seminaries as well, Fuller comes to mind. They're, they're trying to kind of walk this line, neither go full-on leftist, uh, but also they're losing – they're bleeding funding from conservative donors and alums. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it's not it's, – it's almost like it's not easy anywhere to do this. Uh, it's just it, – it takes robust institutions that are almost like independently funded or something – Maybe government mm-hmm. funded, where where they are not re, you know not resorting to the 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 vote of the mob or or at least the people who have the money the the wealthy mob or something. But we also might distinguish between a seminary and an undergraduate institution and say I was just going to do that. Right. No. So Baptist Theological Seminary uh, obviously should be pumping out Baptist pastors. That would be their prerogative. That's their right. That's their reason for living. But Seattle Pacific Undergraduate University, well, that's different. Now we're talking they should be doing the same thing that Harvard and Baylor and everyone else are doing on this modal way of thinking. Well, I, I agree. And, and you're, you set it up perfectly because I was just about to say there are schools of professional training you know, that I suppose have the right to – I don't want to say indoctrinate, but certainly uh, teach a particular perspective. And that's and that's part of, of, of what I would say is, in a sense, a real diversity of, of schools. Let's say you, you want to go to seminary and you, you fall far on the left. You would go here and not there. If you're, if you're conservative and you want to you know, choose a place, you are happy to know that there are places that would fit you better. Uh, that's great. But that's a very different choice from what I understand a true liberal arts undergraduate education to be providing, right. which is not indoctrination. Mm-hmm. And it is not political ideology on the right or on the left. And it's increasingly hard to find a place where that kind of education um, goes goes on. Um, now, do you keep politics entirely out of of the university? Well, of course you can't, and especially not in political science. I mean, I, right. I have a PhD in political science, and um, I I teach one of the courses I teach most often is constitutional law, and there you are going to be right in the thick of political ideology. Even if the justices say, you know, they, they're not ideological, you, you find that they are. And you find that, um, to enter into the, the opinions carefully is to, is to realize you, you have to sort out for the students, what conservative and liberal means, uh, and progressive. But the, the, the thing now is that in constitutional law, it's a great chance to do that and to kind of do the John Stuart Mill, you know, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of yeah, that. That's a perfect time to do it. Yeah. You've got to engage those uh, those opinions from both sides, and, and there it's easy. In other classes, it isn't. I mean, in women's studies, I don't think you can really have a lot of uh, ideological diversity because this, the, the field as a whole is not particularly ideologically diverse. Yeah. Maybe a, a middle ground topic there that Christian schools, both seminaries and undergrad institutions deal with is teaching missiology because the mm-hmm. modern field of missiology cannot be understood without an understanding of colonialism and how the gospel was in point of fact spread for, you know, m- most of Christian history, or at least most of the mm-hmm. last 500 years. And and that has a political dimension. There's no way around it. That's and right. so it does seem like the only way to safeguard this is to say, we're not going to, you know, on these questions, we're not coming in with preconceptions. We are going to teach people how to think. 
And then you've just lost some portion of your donors if you are, for instance, a private institution by, by sure. even being open to that. It's, it's, it's a problem I, I have no idea how to solve. And I think about it often when I think of my friends who are, who are at those institutions. But can we talk about Fuller for a second, though? Because it, it strikes me as kind of a middle case. They are not institutionally related. So they're not – I don't believe they're connected to any particular denomination. And so it's not like a Baptist or a Presbyterian or some kind of a seminary whose main goal is to pump out people who can do that job. And they're really mm-hmm. trying to, to do this middle way of like serious scholarship and serious commitment to the Christian tradition. And they're just having a hell of a time with it. I, I don't know. How, how do you think about an institution like that, that, that is in that gray area? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, and I, I don't have a solution for it. I, I mean, one thing that strikes me is that donors in general, <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I, I, I have nothing against very wealthy people, but but very often these are people who haven't who haven't been on the ground in terms of thinking about these issues for a very long time. If they had, they and would they, be underemployed theologians. <laughs> that's right. They wouldn't be, you know, wealthy business donors titans. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but they they come and they they want to support something that that reflects them, and sure. uh, so to that extent, I, insofar as you're relying on funding um, by donors, I I think you're stuck. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't think you can necessarily win. Yeah. Well, that's very <laughs> I mean, maybe that's that's very obvious. Thanks but. Elizabeth for that vote of confidence. Uh <laughs> dear Fuller, you're screwed. Um okay, so back to uh Alan Jacobs and his and his David Bentley Hart problem. I, I had this thought experiment recently that I, I've been kind of running for myself, especially on Twitter, this would make the most sense, but maybe elsewhere. What if I unfollowed every public figure? journalist, theologian, author, anybody who's not a personal friend who presented a straw man argument or an ad hominem attack or some other logical fallacy, the first time they do it in a tweet, I unfollow them. Number one, who would be left on that list? And number Mm -hmm. two, wouldn't I be better off only listening to those very few voices? What do you think about that? That's an interesting question. I mean, because it is a it is a constant temptation, I think, for writers and journalists in in polemical writing to to use straw man arguments. Oh, yeah. There's also something, and I've been thinking about this lately, deeply embedded in the human soul that wants friends and enemies, and wants them delineated pretty clearly. So yeah. you're always more comfortable if you're in a room with people who you know share your assumptions, rather than in a room where you're really it's either mixed or you are the foreigner in that room. Yeah. And and I think we also come to this this desire to be with people who are like us in terms of in terms of viewpoint. Uh and I think that's why those people who do use the straw man arguments and the ad hominem arguments are so popular because people say, "Yeah, you know, this is what I would want to say oh, too yeah. if I were him." Um and I want to hear what he has to say and he's not afraid of calling people out and he's it's seen as a kind of courage in a certain way. They'll just say it like it oh, is. Oh gosh, it's the opposite of courage though. It, I know. Which um, is the hard part. Sometimes it, I mean, I do think there are things that need to be called out. I mean, but in general conversation, I I do think a, a much more moderate uh tone is more persuasive. The problem is it's just not as inflammatory and it's not as exciting for people to read. I mean, who that's what Alan Jacobs talks about a lot. You know, he's he's charting this moderate course, but a lot of people are just like, oh, well, that's kind of boring. Yeah. I'd rather be with yeah. be with somebody who's really interesting. And so what and so what should we do if we recognize that problem? It seems like we should be willing to be boring. 
I mean, I don't, if, if that's what it takes, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you take the New York or the Virginia, these recent abortion uh, laws that have been proposed and or passed, the, the shorter of a clip that the person posts, the more out of yes. context, the farther yes. it reaches and the more people yes. can rally behind it. And so you could say, yeah, it takes courage to call something out. That's true, but it's so rare that something is purely worth being called out with no yes, nuance, right? right? Uh, I, I know more right. about the New York case than the Virginia one, not a ton, but my understanding is that there is some nuance to that New York thing. It's like, it's only when it's life-threatening or, you know, what, like there are, no, I don't, and don't quote me on that. So that might be false, but there's at least people who are claiming that, and that at least needs to be taken into account. And what counts as the doctor's threshold for making that determination, we don't want it to be a very low threshold. Like people can get marijuana cards, you know, for saying I'm having trouble sleeping and they just dole them out like candy. We wouldn't mm-hmm. want something like that for an infant's life. You know, but it's like, but then, okay, even the fact that I just spoke for 45 more seconds about the details, if you're really into this, you're like, ah, come on, Dan, you're tuning out because it's <laughs> not fun. It's not rah-rah. It's not team-oriented anymore. Now, oh, well, now you're telling me that, now you're telling me that actually it's more complicated. Sorry, it is more complicated. Everything is more complicated all the time, 99% of the yeah. time. No, and you're absolutely right. And And here's the other thing. I'm not one to always blame social media or the internet for all the problems of the day, although I do blame it for some things. I feel like here, those kinds of things have great resonance when you're looking at stories on your computer or your phone. But if you actually were to encounter somebody in your place of work or at the post office who who came up to you and started talking about this, it's it's totally different. Face to face. Yeah, you met someone who had a late term abortion and you asked them oh my gosh, one question yes. about it and they started giving you your story, you would at least go, oh, okay, this is a bit more going on than I thought. Once right. you heard a, a human being telling about it. Right. Right. No, and I think that's that's the, the, the difference that I would say I have seen in practice in that, you know, it's very easy to, to read stuff and to write stuff and to, to see things and then say, oh my gosh, that's terrible. But then you meet somebody with that view and suddenly you're thinking, oh my gosh, I was a little too, yeah. I was a little too hard there. I have to, I have to take this person seriously because this is a person, not just a voice out there writing this thing. Um, I, I think that's where the moderation really matters. I mean, it, it, well, it matters in print though, too, because the print, you know, the articles are the things that form people in their views. It's, it's a, it's a terribly intractable problem at this point. I mean, I've written some things about moderation and, and I I just find myself saying, well, the whole, the other thing about moderation is that in this, in simply saying, well, I consider myself a moderate, you're almost taking a moral high ground right? because wherever you are happens to be the right place and it is the moderate place. Yes. This is the thing I get accused of, by the way, by my friends to to the left and right. Yeah. Yeah. This is usually what they accuse me of because I, I claim to be a political centrist and I really was convinced of that by reading Jonathan Haidt and and others that we've been talking about, uh, Alan Jacobs as well, your your um, colleague, that like, yeah, people need to compromise. Like that actually just works out better given a plurality of opinions and approaches and experiences. And I get called out for the very thing you just mentioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's tough, and uh, people say, well, moderation is moderation is boring. It's wish it's wishy washy. It's um, it doesn't take positions. And I actually, I think there's a way of being a moderate in the way you're describing, actually, because 
you you consider yourself a moderate and you're center left. I consider myself a, a moderate and I'm center right. I mean, obviously we're going to we, we, we would differ on political issues. I'm, I'm quite sure. sure. But I think one of the major virtues of even recognizing why moderation is an admirable thing to pursue is that it gives you a sense of humility so that you're not one of these people who's out in the call out culture saying, oh, you are just beyond the pale. I can't even associate with you. Right. You're, you're forced to say, OK, I, I don't hold that view, but why do you, why do you, I mean, not in a condemnatory way, but in a, in a, in the sense of saying, well, how did you get to this place where that is what you believe? Yeah. So there's, so there are two things that I can think of, uh, that are explainers for why we are like this. Uh, one of them is just the sort of mental energy argument, right? We know through work by Kahneman and, um, Tversky and, and other psychologists of the last 50 years that like, when we get into these situations where we're not around people that we are like, it, it takes a lot more mental energy. We have to, we, you know, that's our brain is so powerful that our, our brain has basically developed ways of saving energy for its own use. And then the other thing is, is from uh, Christian Smith and Michael O. Emerson's book divided by faith, where they talk about the, the, the pretty much consensus sociological literature on groups that it is very difficult to form groups with serious solidarity where there is not uh, quite a bit of definition about what counts as in the group and what counts as out mm -hmm. of the group. And that might be for the same reason. It might just be a collective version of the mental energy saving um, tactic of the brain or, or whatnot. So I don't know. I, I just wanted to throw those out there and see if you had anything uh, to say about either of those. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And I actually can give you um, some example. Well, and a particular example uh, of where this where this happened, uh, my sister went with me. I'm on the um, board of directors at First Things Magazine, mm -hmm. and I go up for a meeting every every twice a year and uh, to New York City. And I went to a dinner uh, at someone's house at, at one of these meetings, and Mary, my sister, came with me. Well, it so happened that some of the more extreme members of these are not people on the board, but these are people associated with they were friends of friends. Very anti-homosexual. I mean, very in a way that made me cringe. I would have cringed with whether Mary were there yeah. or not, but Mary was there, wow. and I didn't know she was gay. And I remember just cringing in my chair, and then watching her and thinking, how how does this feel for her to be in a group where she is not only sort of marginal, but she is she is in a sense being attacked. And um, I think being in situations like that, I mean, it's, it's miserable when you're in the situation. It was miserable for me. It was miserable for her. Actually, she, she found it pretty interesting. She wasn't miserable. I was miserable. But putting yourself in positions where you are the minority, you learn quite a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, you learn, you, you get an immediate perspective on yourself uh, and, and on where your, um, where your views seem normal to you. They will seem utterly foreign to someone else. And that's a that's a that's a good experience. But you're right; it's not an easy or a comfortable experience. Yeah, we we might have uh, to. I mean, she didn't choose it; she she lucked into it in that case. But we might actually have to choose those situations in order to sort of keep that part of our brain pruning going on. I think that's right because give, left to our own devices, we'll we'll hang out with people we agree with and who make right. us comfortable. Um, part of the research or, or the sort of experimental um, research we may do for this book is, I said, Mary, I need to come and meet your most extreme uh, lesbian activist friends. I love you know, it. The ones who say, who say, oh, you know, who who is this sister of yours? And I said, I'd like to meet them. And she said, I can make that I happen. I can't wait to, to read what happens. That's a great idea. I love that. 
That reminds me of uh, Sally Sally Cohn, the former Fox News and now CNN contributor. She she just did a book about hate and kind of a, a similar thing. And she contacted her fiercest Twitter Twitter trolls, maybe like a dozen a did dozen she? of them, and got on the phone with them. And and she tells some of those stories in in the book and in some interviews she's done about the book. And she had some pretty interesting experiences, like the just the the human interaction really changed the dynamic. Uh, You know, in an instant. So that part does seem to be a problem with the form of media. I mean, have you read Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman? So Mm -hmm. um, that book is interesting. The main argument of that book is that the medium in some sense determines the message. So a television program simply can't do what a newspaper can do, simply can't do what a full length book can do or what a speech in person can do. That particular issue of the Twitter, the Twitter troll, that seems like a, a medium problem that you, you couldn't mm-hmm. – a person who acts like that in a group of people in a human group <laughs> would just be immediately shunned. They would, yes. they would be immediately penalized for that action socially without anybody even having to think about it, right? And That's right. But on, online, they might get praise. They get a bunch of likes. They get, they get the, literally the opposite reaction from, from their actions. I know, and it, it is crazy. I mean, it is it is also the the issue with uh, with internet comments about uh, you know anything anybody writes. Uh, I hear the the advices now: don't read the comments. Yeah, just, just, just don't, don't read the comments yeah. because you're not going to get the people who you really need to be hearing from. You're going to get the people on the extremes, and I think that's that's quite true. And you're right to say that these these people are not they would never act this way in in normal life. But they feel freed by the medium to do it, and I I don't know what to do about that either because I you know to the extent we live online now uh, it's harder and harder to to actually talk to people in in person. Well, so one thing that we have <laughs> firmly established, Elizabeth, is that we have no solutions at a system wide level for any of these problems. Uh, Fuller <laughs> is screwed. Twitter is screwed. Uh, every anybody with donors is screwed. But we are individuals. And that doesn't mean we have no solutions for our own selves and our lives. And the question I want to ask you is, what virtues could we cultivate that would help us with these particular problems that we've been talking about? And then how do we cultivate that's, those virtues? That's a great question. And and though I am the kind of person who would say, I don't know that there are system-wide solutions to this, I definitely think on the individual level and, and on the level of, let's say, even – I mean, I work in a college. My hope is that the work we do here at um, at the undergraduate level with some subset of students who choose this college will have a beneficial effect on them and on society as a whole. And what we're trying to trying to inculcate here is a is a is an openness to argument, an openness to difference, uh, a, a habit of civility in conversation. And we do that through. Uh, through classes. I mean, insofar as you learn in a civilized setting how to respond to people you disagree with, that's a great skill <laughs> for going forward in the in the real world. So I think there are lots of ways that you can make things better in a small way without saying, well, I'm going to socially engineer this program that's going to inculcate civility throughout the entire United States. I mean, yeah. <laughs> good luck with yeah, that. Yeah, best of luck with that. I mean, but like we were talking about, you know, your sister, Mary, found herself in this situation uh, that was difficult where she was, you know, well, actually, you both found yourself in this situation that was difficult to be in, but that taught you something like, are there things we can do? Can, 
if we are a white Christian, can we go attend a black church every once in a while? Can if mm-hmm. we are uh, a lefty Seattleite like myself, can we could we go and hang out with some you know red staters in Eastern Washington? Like how can we can we put ourselves in the line of fire, so to speak, such that we um, sort of chisel at the the calcification of our group identity mm-hmm. inside our brain? Like what would you recommend? I think I think already what you've recommended are, are all of those things are good ideas. The thing that stops us from putting ourselves in these situations is this tremendous feeling of discomfort. Right. You know the the idea that well I'm going among amongst people who um, who dislike everything I am and everything I stand for. In some cases, I mean it's not always that that cut and dry. But I think to the to the extent that you can forge relationships with people whose whose views are not the same as yours, you ought to jump at those. Uh, and I, and I, I try to do it. I don't always do it as well as I could because I, as it turns out, I'm in a pretty home, not homogeneous, um, situation, but, but there are certain things that are taken for granted here in central Texas that wouldn't be taken for granted out on the East coast or the West coast. For sure. Yeah. And vice versa. I have one more question for you before I get to, um, I actually asked the patrons of my podcasting work for some questions about this. And I got a bunch back because it's a topic that people are really interested in. So on the phone with you, you mentioned to me that you and Alan Jacobs go to the same church and that you had kind mm-hmm. of a hard time finding this particular kind of church. So I've kind of a two-parter. I want you to tell me why you had a hard time finding it and what you were looking for. Then I also wonder if you think that by going to that church, you guys are putting yourself in that difficult position or did you just happen to find a group of people like you that it's easy to be with but who you think are doing a healthy thing and and in that sense mm-hmm. did you sort of hack that part of the brain you know can, can we can we find the right people to spend time with who will inculcate in us the right kind of virtue so that's a convoluted two-parter about the church but uh, wherever you want to start well yeah I'll, I'll answer it just by saying to begin with, I am actually between two different churches, and the two churches themselves are quite different. One is an Anglican church, um, an Anglican Church of North America, which is the conservative yeah. wing of the Anglican Church, and then one is just a straight up Episcopal church, which is it doesn't it it keeps itself pretty politically neutral, which I appreciate. It's not there's no politics preached from the pulpit, which is an absolute for me. I don't want to go and hear I don't want to hear right leaning sermons. I don't want to hear left leaning sermons. I I want that to to stay to the degree as possible, um, not not a, not a space for politics. Uh, but I am between these two churches, and Alan, I, I believe, is fully at the at the Episcopal Church. Um, what we what I find at, at the Episcopal Church is that uh, I am thrown in with a lot of people who are far to the left right. of me, not um, not ostentatiously, you know talking about politics all the time, but this church has several gay couples, gay, um, gay men. It's very clear that, um, they're couples and, uh, my other church doesn't have that and, and wouldn't accept that. I'm also there because I have children who like the other, each church. Hmm, Okay. So there are all sorts of motivations for me for being between churches. I think for Alan, um, it, it is the, um, the kind of more moderate position of, of the Episcopal church. Uh, it's not taking, really firm and hard positions on this particular church issues right yeah this particular church now most episcopal churches well this is the problem Uh, that we're running into here on the west coast because my wife and i have sadly just left our church and this is exactly what i'm dreading uh and and as someone who's theologically to your left 
I I don't have that <laughs> conservative Anglican option. So I have to find right. people who hold my theological leftward views and don't get into the are not just hashtag resistors. And uh, I'm right. just totally not looking forward to that, to that search, but maybe it will go better than I think. It's tough. It's tough because I think a lot of priests, um, especially in the Episcopal Church, tend to mistake um, preaching for political activism. I've known a number, and they've driven us, my husband and me, right out of this, uh, their churches. Uh, you know, and, and again, I would say that's on the right and the left. I don't want to hear politics. Yeah, it's certainly on both sides. Now, now, it's not that, I mean, it's not to say that the Gospels have no political implications. Of course they do. But, um, but there are a lot of ways you can do that very subtly and well and carefully and not by talking about the UN or Trump. I don't, I don't want to hear that. Yeah, there's also a question, um, even if you, and this is something that I feel like uh, people, for some reason, often don't make this move. And I, this is something I came up with so much in doing my Depolarized podcast, that you might agree on a goal, uh, a leftward or a rightward goal, but you still have to have a conversation about how do people change their minds? And that's a separate mm-hmm. conversation. That's a practical conversation. And, and many right. of us, you know, I'll speak for myself, uh, probably most of these Episcopal priests, like I share many of their political and theological convictions. But if they are preaching about the day's Trump news from the pulpit, then I know that they and I disagree on how people are effectively reached. And I, for some reason, a lot of people have a hard time uh, making that move. And I'm, I'm not really sure what that's about. Maybe it's a lack of liberal arts education. <laughs> well, <laughs> everything, everything is, right? right? Yeah. No, the, the one thing I would say to, to that question, though, is that uh, the way people change their views is by talking with people who hold different views. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> to the extent that Mary and I wrote that piece, I mean, when she came out as, as gay in 1996, I think it was 1996, we were all horrified because that was not done. And that was certainly not done in the South in families like ours. Now, come to 22 years later, to the degree, you know, short of the marriage question, she's completely accepted Mm. by my parents and by me. And we have a great relationship. So what has changed? Well, you know, the culture's changed, yes, but, but it's the experience of knowing Mary that has changed us. And I would say in churches, it's, it's often the same thing that, well, you think this, and then you meet somebody who believes something else, and you're forced to, to push a little bit. Or, or I mean, they, they push you, and so you're forced to compromise. Yeah, but another one of these institutional problems that we won't be able to solve, and that Smith and Emerson do a really good job of explaining in Divided by Faith, is that the most effective principles that have been used now for 40 years in growing churches is to have them as culturally homogenous as possible, because that's, that's the only that's way it works. And that's just mm-hmm. seems like a feature, not a bug of human brains, you know, or whatever. And so that's a well, like, big problem. And again, I mean, that's coming back to this friends and enemies. We want to be around people right. who, who are yep. like us and we, we don't feel threatened by them. And we know we have a lot in common. And so we have a, a common fund of experience drawn. And that's much, it more, is comfortable. much more comfortable. Um, so I've got four excellent questions uh, from patrons and listeners of this show that I'm going to ask and then, and then we'll be done. Okay. The first one is, what are some ways that we can learn to recognize the mob that we ourselves are either a part of or are, yeah, are a part of perhaps without even being aware that we are in the mob? How do we know that we're in a mob? Yeah. Well, I can tell you for myself, it's um, who do I get asked to speak by with the exception of you, uh, interestingly. And, and, I'll take um, that as a huge you know, compliment, Elizabeth. 
Yes. Well, it is. But I mean, in general, I get all kinds of conservative organizations ask me to speak. Those kinds of things are certainly indicators. I'm not being asked by, you know, people on the left usually to to talk. Certainly, if you're an academic or a journalist or a writer of some kind, who, who are the people asking you to do things? And to Alan's credit, to turn to Alan Jacobs again, he's actually getting pretty wide coverage. I mean, he's getting people on the left uh, you know, around the world and people on the right and everybody in between. And he's so in that sense, his his project, his project is succeeding and he's reaching more than just, you know, the people who would naturally be inclined mm. to agree with him. What about for those of us who are not <laughs> you know. public speakers? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe there it's a question of what do you feel inclined to go and look at on yeah. a daily basis? Do you what papers do you read? What websites do you frequent? I mean, if you find yourself only going to <laughs> to a, s- a certain subset, then you are maybe you're getting too comfortable in in yeah. the mob or the group. If you're only reading Breitbart, Fox News, and Drudge Report, or you're only reading Salon, Slate, and Vox, uh, that will tell right. you something. Yeah, that will tell you a lot. But I think certainly, wh- where do you naturally incline? I mean, it's like Aristotle said: you, you're you're drawn to one extreme. The aim is then to sort of veer to the other side so that you can hit that mean. Uh, if you want to not be a man- member of the of a that Aristotelian mean. One of my favorite concepts in the world these days. It's very important. It's very hard to get. I to, was also going to say too, like, so here's a little anecdote. Yesterday I was getting beers with a friend and in Seattle, a very liberal city. And we were, we were in uh, the university district and there was a poster that was a fundraiser for planned parenthood. But there was no mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood logo on the poster. The graphic was a rainbow flag and a black power fist superimposed over the rainbow flag. And I thought, this is an example, perhaps, of some people who are in a mob. And the reason I say that mm-hmm. is because what does black power and LGBTQ rights have to do with Planned Parenthood? It's tangential at best. And and what I think the answer really is, is they're the things that we all agree on. That's what it is. Exactly. It's not, there's no yes. argumentative. I mean, you can make an argument that, well, reproductive health is, you know, socioeconomic status and socioeconomic status is linked to Black Lives Matter and, and you know, trans kids have higher rates of depression. I mean, you can try, but it's That's a, a stress, big though. one. I mean, it's the... Those you really have to sort of motivate each of those arguments and just have a Planned Parenthood fair. You know, if you think Planned Parenthood's good, if you like the health care that they give, like just raise money for them. Great. Do your mm-hmm. thing. You're free speech, free freedom of assembly. Do it. But that was like a way of going, oh, so one thing you might do is you might look at the RNC platform or the DNC platform. And if you find yourself agreeing with 95% of its planks, then that might be a reason to go, oh, maybe I have actually not thought about 30 or 40% of mm-hmm. these at all. And I'm just kind of going with what everyone else thinks because because those things right. actually change. And I mean, the the Republican platform from Romney to Trump is a perfect example. They They changed on a bunch of items. If you, for instance, found yourself just going right along with all those changes, well, then obviously you hadn't thought about them and you don't actually hold yeah. those views. You're just in a group. Right. Yes. And the only thing I would say back to that is to a certain extent, I mean, you're right. You are just in a group. You are maybe in a mob. Uh, These are not people who are thinking carefully about things. But the only good thing about that is that to some degree, those party platforms are just a just a shorthand for a whole lot of stuff you don't 
a lot of people just no, don't have totally, time to think and about. I, I, I totally mean, agree. Are, I totally agree with that. And yeah. I think that part that's why parties are so helpful. You, you, here's the honest truth: when I vote in Seattle, I I have found that the Seattle Times editorial board is like center left, and they they prioritize the same stuff I prioritize, and I literally just vote whatever they say on local initiatives because mm-hmm. they're reporters. Mm-hmm. They've shown me. Right. That they 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 are left, but they really care about people who can cross the aisle and with real experience. And they don't like the stranger is our weekly kind of alternative paper. They don't say the same thing the stranger says. They're not far left. And I just go, that's great. That's me. It's not actually worth my mm-hmm. time to look into these things much more. I'll just take their word for it. Like until they have shown me something that they've done that would really violate that trust. So that's yeah. good. I, yeah, I guess the only thing. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say that. You know, there are these other things that people can choose to spend their time doing, you know, arts, sports, um, reading, you know, whatever it is you you choose to do short of, you know, policy, policy, policy. What do I think about this issue? I mean, there's a kind of myopia if you're if you're all about politics all the time. But, yeah, yeah I mean, your point is well taken. The, the, the party changes. And if you just change with it on every issue, it's probably, you know, you're not thinking too deeply yeah. about these things. Here's another one of the patron questions. How do we know that the mob is wrong and that we're not wrong? First thing I think of is like, well, there are different mobs that all claim to be right and they can't all be right. Uh, but what else? What yeah. would you add to that? Well, as a as a college teacher and as somebody who really does try, does not always succeed to to be moderate, I think you always have to have a sense of um, a, a willingness to reconsider your opinions, to be curious and say, well, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, but I'm not positive. I mean, there, there's a kind of dogmatism on the on the extremes of the of the spectrum right now that is just absolutely certain it is right and cannot be changed. And I don't share that. I mean, I'm on almost everything willing to say, well, let let me hear, let me hear. So it's a kind of um, I would say an intellectual humility, a willingness to be refuted. Uh, on on in our in an argument, I mean, you all we all know people who just can never be wrong in an argument, and they're not fun to talk with because it's just a it's a battle, and it doesn't it doesn't ever resolve in any into anything that is productive. It's just you know that person's view better <laughs> than you did before. Um, but those those co- those conversations are almost pointless. Why why are we having them if that person is unwilling to be refuted? So I you know you've got to keep a a sense of your fallibility. So Haidt and Lukianoff in Coddling of the American Mind, they also present another piece of evidence that the mob is wrong. Um, and they're looking particularly at the these uh, Northeast and West Coast college student, um, the, the super far left college student activists. Um, but I think they would say the same thing probably applies to the far right. And, and they just say, look, uh, if you learn cognitive behavioral therapy, you learn uh, all these exactly. like 17 or 19 – cognitive distortions that people make when they are anxious or depressed or when they're not seeing the world clearly, when they're not flourishing as a healthy human being. And you find some of these cognitive distortions being taught as part of the rubric of this activism. So if you find a cognitive distortion in the messaging of the mob, then that's a pretty good piece of evidence that they're wrong. I I think Mm -hmm. I like that argument. Well, and and to to pile on on the, on in that book, I mean, it's the I've been talking about friends and enemies, but certainly the Haidt and Lukianoff talk about the the way in which these mentalities are you're either all good, yeah, or it's you're kind all of bad, yeah. and there's nothing in the in this mm-hmm. middle. And 
And, and that's a, you know, if you're finding, oh my gosh, this whole group is just anathema to me. I cannot even associate with them. Well, then maybe, maybe you are part of a, of a mob. Uh, this is a great question here. And I am, I I should have looked at this question before I had this conversation with you because I feel like I've already violated it to some degree. How do we go against the mob with charity and avoid being cynical, self-righteous, or arrogant. And I think I got a little soapboxy here today and I didn't, I haven't quite lived up to that. <laughs> Great question. Well, I mean, in a certain sense, I'd give you the same answer that I just gave you. It, it is, it is by cultivating a certain uh, set of intellectual virtues yeah. that allow you to imagine that the other person who you think is wrong may not be completely stupid or may not be completely wrong. I mean, I don't have anything particularly profound or new here to say, except that, uh, it needs to it needs to be with you in, in the sense that you've got to be willing to imagine how life looks from someone else's perspective. In other words, I mean, my answer is be charitable. Yeah. Imagine uh, imagine what that what that person's life looks like from their perspective, and it's hard. And how do you get better at it? Well, uh, by talking to people, by reading you know works by people you may not agree with, um, by reading per- works you do agree with. I mean, just you've got to develop what I would say is a moral imagination having to do with um, not just moral issues, but ways of living so that you can understand somebody whose life is radically different from yours. Yeah. So this last, I suppose that's an argument. Oh, for yeah, education, you should go get a liberal arts education. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, this last one, I'm going to come, I'm going to tack on my own little question to it. The, um, the person asked, how do we respond when the mob that we oppose is made up of our brothers and sisters in Christ or our family members? And I just want to tack onto that kind of a general motivation, like why does mob avoidance matter for, for Christ followers in general? I think those kind of are of a piece. Well, I think mob avoidance is important simply because insofar as we're treating people as members of a mob, we are, we're not treating them as individuals. And, and I guess if there's anything that comes to me as important, it is not to prejudge people based on either one or two opinions that I happen to learn about them or some demographic characteristic, you know, it's, is, is this person African-American? Is this person a woman? Is this person gay? Um, but actually do evaluate the person at, uh, in, in his or her concrete uh, self. Yeah. So I, I suppose the answer to, 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 to this mob question is to, is to try and try and bring things back down to an, a much more individual and personal level. T- talk to people. I mean, I, I wish that, that I had some, better, larger, um, better, larger answer. But that probably is what I would, what I would have to say. Is there anything we could add in though, when there is a mutual shared Christian faith, for instance, between people who, uh, maybe one of them is in one of these mobs and one is not, or is in another mob? Well, the first and great commandment of course, is to love God uh, with your, with all your heart and then to love your neighbor as yourself. I think if we spent a lot more time thinking about how, how it, what does it mean to love a neighbor? We obviously don't love them in a, in a romantic sense. We may not love them in a familial sense. Uh, we may not even like them, but what would it mean to love the neighbor that we are set with? Uh, I, I think in, in a Christian sense, we have to ask ourselves that question. And certainly this is even more important in an, in an age where you know you can have Christians, people who self-identify as Christians, but hold radically different moral uh, opinions. Yeah. <sighs> Dr. Elizabeth Corey, thank you so much for this conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a it's been a real pleasure.
Big thanks to Elizabeth Corey for coming on the show. Uh, in the show notes, we have a link to her and Mary's essay from The Atlantic, another link to more writings by Elizabeth, a link to The Coddling of the American Mind, that Height and Lukianoff book we talked about a couple times, and a link to Alan Jacobs' book, How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. Thank you guys for listening. Again, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. Two bonus episodes per month, access to the Facebook group, and the ability to ask questions of future guests. These episodes are intended to be a resource, so please share them, even with people who might disagree, parents, friends, pastors, whomever, and let me know how those conversations go. Email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. I really do want to know what you guys think, if this show is being helpful, what you'd like me to cover, all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Thank you guys for listening. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.